Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. Joining me today from the Orla team is Lori Little, Director of Communications. How's it going, Lori? It's going great. Thanks, Greg. You know, we just had a pretty big event last week, uh, the One Big Night auction and dinner, our biggest PAC or Political Action Committee fundraiser. And I know I had a lot of fun, but... Well, it looked like you're having a lot of fun. I mean, you had all your props out for Oregon Ducks and you even put on a beaver hat, didn't you? I did. And I think we should clarify, I was the MC and the auctioneer, which is why I had props, not just some random guy in the audience with props. But uh, it was a very successful event. We had uh, some great items uh, that we were auctioning off. I know that the raffle was pretty successful. The portable party package, which was the uh, the little cart with all the Yeti, Yeti. coolers and tumblers and mm-hmm. all kinds of fun stuff in there to take take the party on the road. So... Um, I want to say thanks to everybody who came to One Big Night and everybody who donated items and, of course, everybody who took home auction items uh, for us. That was a, that was a great event. Yeah, we, um, had a, we had a good turnout, and I think people had a really nice time there. So, Yeah, uh, big shout-out to the Nines Hotel in downtown Portland. Thanks to Jean-Marc and all of his staff for all the great work that they did. You know, we've got another fundraiser coming up. Um, it's not quite as fancy. But it sure is a lot of fun, and that's the Orla Open coming up on Monday, July 30th out at Langdon Farms. Our presenting sponsor for that, of course, is Liberty Mutual, and we, we uh, appreciate their support as well. And it's, and it's a time to actually get out on the greens instead of in the office, right? Absolutely. And, you know, by July 30th, we probably won't have any more rain. Uh, I mean, you never know. You but, never know. But it should be all right. So uh, we're looking forward to having folks join us for that, too. You can go to OregonRLA.org. And check out the information on the Orla Open. We want to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we like to highlight a benefit you may or may not be aware of. Did you know members get discounts on sex trafficking recognition and response training? Your Orla member benefits include a 10% discount on in-person training by a member of Guardian Group's staff, a discount on the Guardian SEAL virtual training program, industry, location, customer, and employee-specific training, and access to a proprietary reporting system to view training progress, reporting activity, and more. To learn more, visit info at theguardiangroup.us. Not a member? Visit OregonRLA.org, where you can join and start taking advantage of the numerous benefits that Orla has to offer. Today we have a great interview. We're going to get into harassment prevention training with Darcy McAllister of HRT Northwest. And I'm very excited to introduce Darcy. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you as well. And this can be, um, I know, sometimes a difficult topic to discuss. Obviously, it's in the news right now. And, um, you know, sexual harassment is a problem no matter what industry you're in, whether it's politics, entertainment, hospitality. Uh, We've seen a lot of stories come out in the last year, especially in the hospitality industry, that have detailed some of the issues and the incidents that are happening, uh, both between employees and between employees and customers. So, Darcy, how does one exactly define sexual harassment? So the general definition is, quote, unwelcome advances, requests for sexual favors, or other unwelcome behavior of a sexual nature that affects an individual's employment, unreasonably interferes with his or her work performance, or creates an intimidating, hostile, or work uh, offensive work environment. 
So Darcy, defining sexual harassment uh, can sometimes be problematic as well because what one person may feel is harassment, another one may not. Um, so can you talk about what is the, quote, reasonable standard, uh, end quote, uh, for sexual harassment, what that means? Sure. So when looking at specific instances or cases, the courts have identified a standard called the reasonable person standard. And that essentially asks, would a reasonable person be offended in this situation? That's still kind of a squishy definition, but it does help identify where the line should be drawn. So if I'm Travis Kalanick, who's the former CEO of Uber, and I'm yelling obscenities at one of my contract drivers, that may have been a normal behavior behavior at Uber, but no reasonable person should be tolerating that behavior. And so the courts would define that as a reasonable st- person standard. Hmm. I like your word squishy. I mean, that's uh, that's so true. I mean, when you're thinking about how people's perceptions differ. And, you know, what about even cultural differences? I mean, um, they may have completely different perceptions on what's acceptable and not. Right. In the area of harassment, uh, the person who's feeling offended is the person who defines it as harassment. And so that causes uh, problems when you have somebody who may just be joking or doing something that they've always been done, and suddenly somebody new comes into an organization or a team, and they're offended by that. And that can be considered harassment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this uh, earlier, but how does that differ from a, quote, hostile work environment? So there are essentially two types of harassment. There's quid pro quo, which is this for that. And that's essentially where, you know, if, if you don't sleep with me, you won't get your promotion. Um, and then there's also what uh, the courts define as a hostile work environment. And that's what I was referring to above as some pervasive or severe behavior, be it comments, actions, emails, posters, whatever, that is so bothersome that it interferes with a person's ability to do their job. So a common example is an employee who constantly makes comments about another person's looks or makes jokes or involving sex or something like that. I once did an investigation where the supervisor had nicknames for all his employees and the quality of your nickname depended on how he liked you. As I was doing that investigation, everybody was offended, but it was the employee with one of the choicer names that filed the complaint. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is it is it possible to, it, it, it is possible in my mind then, I guess, to have a hostile work environment without sexual harassment, but generally if there is sexual harassment, does that automatically mean there's a hostile work environment? Uh, no, because if you go through quid pro quo, which is this for that, it's and, and it's egregious. So it's, hey, if you do not sleep with me, I'm not going to give you that promotion. Mm-hmm. That's not a hostile work environment if it only happens once, but it's still sexual harassment. Okay. Clear as mud, right? So obviously, both of these are influenced by gender, race, language, sexual orientation, and a whole host of other factors, right? Yes. So when we're talking about sexual harassment, that's specifically about sex or gender. Um, But there are a whole host of protected classes based on what you just listed. So in Oregon, we have 10 protected classes, which includes race, color, religion, sex, which could also include same-sex harassment, two females harassing two females, sexual orientation, national origin, marital status, veteran status, disability, or age. All of those are protected in Oregon. So do you see the recent spotlight on sexual harassment having an impact on policy, uh, whether it's nationally or here in Oregon? Well, it takes a long time to enact policy or laws, so I don't see anything really coming 
recently. Um, But the Me Too movement is only seven months old, after all, uh, starting with Harvey Weinstein, if that's when you start that movement. But I do see a cultural shift. Hollywood is certainly taking the lead on zero tolerance. Um, If you think about the strong reaction by ABC to Roseanne Barr's comments last week, when they canceled her show, that's a prime example of what what the culture is shifting to. Closer to home, the shakeup at Nike certainly includes behavior towards female employees that is no longer being tolerated, but has once been tolerated for, it sounds like, several years. Yeah. Hmm. Seems like a good time for us to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Darcy McAllister from HRT Northwest. Oregon's love of food runs deep. The evidence is all around us in our restaurants and hotels that pride themselves on high-quality fresh ingredients. And to truly cherish food, we have a responsibility to stop wasting it. As food professionals, we have the power to eliminate significant amounts of waste. By ordering just enough, using it from tip to tail and root to leaf, we can show our colleagues and our customers what's possible and delicious. Visit foodwastestopswithme.org to learn more about how you can reduce food waste in your kitchen. All right. Welcome back to Boil Down, the podcast for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Again, my name is Greg Astley. I'm your host. And with me today again is Lori Little, Director of Communications for Orla and Darcy McAllister with HRT Northwest. We're talking about sexual harassment. And for our listeners out there, Darcy, I'm sure one of the things they're going to want to know most about is how do they go about preventing this kind of harassment? Uh, what can employers do to, to protect themselves? What steps can they take? Yeah, essentially, it all boils down to creating a respectful work environment and uh, not tolerating behaviors that are disrespectful to your coworkers. But there are specific steps that employers can take to protect themselves. First of all, they should have a policy that defines harassment and sexual harassment that outlines that harassment is not tolerated, that describes how to report issues, that outlines what will happen if a report is made, and prohibits retaliation. Essentially, these usually come in the employee's handbook, but they should include all those components, and then the employer needs to enforce the policy. Secondly, it's a really good idea to have multiple reporting avenues. So, It shouldn't be just that if you're uncomfortable, you have to report it to your supervisor because if the supervisor is the one who's making you feel uncomfortable, you don't want to do that. Sure. A lot of times I run into um, uh, places where uh, women who just wanted to report it to another woman because they didn't think that a man would listen to them. So you need to have multiple reporting avenues. And remember, the idea is, is that you want them to report it internally so you as the employer can correct the issue before they take it to some place like you know, the EEOC or Bully or something like that. Sure. Thirdly, once you have your your policy and your reporting avenues, you need to communicate all of the above to the employees. And you should do this via discussions with them or training, document that you've done that, and include examples of unacceptable behavior. You should also train managers on how to appropriately respond to unacceptable behavior or how to respond when they receive a complaint. So, I was uh, reading up a little bit on Mario Batali and that situation uh, before in preparation for this podcast. And uh, when one of the complainants took it to her restaurant manager, he said, oh, that's just Mario. Don't worry about it. Mm. And that is not the way to have a supervisor respond to that. Sure. Yeah. So if I'm a supervisor or an employer, when you receive the complaint, you really should listen, take it seriously and investigate. And then one of the things that I run into often is that employers do all of this, companies, organizations, but they never tell the person what happened. And so the person goes away thinking that they weren't listened to. So it's really important to close the loop once you've looked into it 
get back to the person who complained and tell them what happened so they know that you did something about it. Okay. And uh, I want to jump back just real quick. One of the things you mentioned was communicating all of that to the employees via either discussions, meetings, whatever it might be, or some sort of training. How often does that training have to take place? Is there is there a rule or a law about how often you need to conduct those kinds of trainings, or is it just really up to the individual establishment? Well, it's recommended to do it annually, mm-hmm. um, but there's no law in Oregon. In California, supervisors are required to be trained for two hours every year which is, I believe, a little bit overkill because you can only explain this so many different ways to make it interesting. But generally, they recommend that you do it at least annually so that you are catching new employees, that you're reminding employees, and that employees know that you take it really seriously and you want to remind them what the policy is. Great. And I think not just... um training annually but reviewing all your policies is a good practice as well it is things are changing so much on the uh on the legal landscape and in all of these areas that it's really good idea to at least look at your policies annually and make sure that they're not out of date Mm -hmm. yeah i i'm interested so what is what happens when you do an investigation um, so when an investigation happens, so the first thing that should uh, employers should know is that if you receive a complaint, you should act on it as soon as possible. Um, and that does not mean like, hey, I'll get to it in two weeks when I get back from, from my vacation. Because one of the things that if there is going to be a, a legal um, action on this, the courts are going to say, well, how long did you take to respond to that? So you want to follow up as immediately as possible. Uh, what you should do is you should you need to talk to the person who's complaining, take detailed notes on what it is that they're uh, complaining about, what behaviors they're uncomfortable with. I always encourage people to say, hey, ask, hey, what do you want to see happen? Because very rarely is it, hey, I want to see them fired. It's, I just want it to stop. Yeah. And that's a really good way of identifying what it is that you're going to need to do to make it right. Then you need to pull in the person who's being accused, get their side of the story. Uh, you need to talk to anybody who might have witnessed it because there's always multiple sides to a story. So it's good to have witnesses if you can before you make a conclusion. And as you're doing this, it's important to reiterate to everybody not to talk about it because what you need to find out is what really happened, not what the grapevine is suddenly saying. Mm-hmm. Good things to know. So I know employers can't retaliate against someone who makes a claim of harassment, but what about someone who knowingly makes a false claim? Well, it's, uh, that's a good point to bring up, Lori. We haven't talked about retaliation. So the law specifically prohibits um, any kind of retaliation for somebody who participates in an investigation or makes a complaint. And so it's really important that uh, employers ensure that that doesn't happen. And often that's the hardest time uh, for uh uh, investigation because how do you how do you prevent it, people from treating people differently because they made a complaint mm-hmm. and so that's really hard but in the instance where you've done your investigation and it turns out I once did an investigation like this it turns out that uh, they had been dating each other they broke up the woman was just really trying to get the guy into trouble and there it was a completely false complaint and uh, in that case it's um, it was the organization took steps um, against the person who made the complaint because she was lying and they had a policy that you have to be honest on the job. And so they took steps, disciplinary steps because she lied about it. 
but back to your uh, retaliation, because I, I know you just said it's you know maybe hard to treat someone differently after this kind of a thing comes out. Is there a standard for what retaliation looks like, or or what it might, what form it might take? And just as an example, I guess um, you may have to change someone's schedule because of customer needs or somebody else. You know, one of the other employees has a need to change the schedule. But it may be the person whose schedule you're changing is the person who made the complaint. Um, is there any kind of a standard that says that these are the things you can or cannot do or that would be retaliation, I guess? Well, if that specific situation came up with me, I would be um, advising the organization to try as much as possible not change the working conditions of the person who made the complaint because that might be perceived as retaliation. Sure. So I would talk to the person and, and say, "Hey, we need to make this. Uh, we may need to make this change. Are you okay with this?" And if they say no, then I'd go back to the drawing board. Okay. Uh, because it's really important that you do not want to appear to retaliate against somebody. Uh, so trying to establish that there has been no penalizing the person um, is really probably the best solution there. And as always, documentation, of course, is critical when you're doing something like this, that, you know, there was a request or that you've you've talked to the employee and here's what's happened. And mm-hmm. I would imagine you've got to maintain that kind of stuff just in case something comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And going back to Lori's question about how you do investigations, uh, you want to document everything. And the reason that that's really important is because if there is a long term complaint, sometimes it can take years before you actually are talking to the lawyers. And I don't know about you, but I can barely remember what I had for dinner last night. So remembering <laughs> right. who said what, if I mm. haven't written it down two years ago, is really impossible. Yeah, I, yeah. I had cold pizza, by the way. I just want to throw <laughs> that out there. So. Nice. <laughs> now, we've been talking a lot about employees and harassment, but what about when an owner um, or an employer is accused? So... Um, This is a really hard one because, uh, like I said before, you really want to have multiple steps for reporting. Uh, And I realize that uh, we have a lot of small businesses in Oregon, and especially in Orla, you have, if you're a restaurant, you're probably a pretty small business. But uh, if it's the owner, then uh, you need to have somebody who can feel comfortable coming to that person and saying, hey, we've received a concern, and we we need to look into it, and would you... Identify somebody who's not going to be biased and not feel threatened by the fact that they're investigating you, and will will you let us look into that? Um, because once again, uh, even though it would be a really uncomfortable uh, situation for an owner or an, uh, a manager, uh, you want to be able to resolve this in house and not have bully or the EOC come in and help you resolve it. Yeah, I was going to say because the options there, of course, are if you can't report it to somebody uh, who's in the organization, then your next obvious step has to be to, to go outside and speak to someone else like an attorney or bully, as you mentioned. Exactly. Well, and I, I would imagine that some people maybe just don't report it because of, you know, feeling uncomfortable or, or um, threatened as to what might happen. Absolutely. I, I would say that with the Me Too movement, it's becoming clear that there are tons of unreported cases of people feeling uncomfortable in the workplace and who just didn't feel like they felt either like the person was too powerful or too protected. And that's costing a lot of businesses, a lot of money Mm -hmm. and a lot of time. 
Well, and I think it goes back to one of the first things we talked about, which is what may be uncomfortable for one person may not be for another. So you may witness what you think is sexual harassment in the workplace, but if the person who you think was being harassed doesn't feel it, um, I guess that brings up another kind of an interesting question. So um, if I feel like I'm not being harassed, but Lori feels like I was, is that a problem? Is that a sexual harassment issue? I mean... If Absolutely. They, okay. So uh, harassment is in the uh, per eyes of the person who's being offended. And so that does not necessarily need to be the person who's the object of the commentary. So a perfect example is, you know, if you have two guys who come in and on Monday and always exchange what they did for entertainment over the weekend mm -hmm. and they're talking in cube land or in a rest or in a kitchen or something. And then you have somebody else who has to listen to that and is offended by that, even though they're not part of that conversation, that can still be construed as harassment because mm -hmm. the other person is perceiving it as offensive. Mm -hmm. Wow. So a lot that we have to watch out for, obviously, <laughs> right? Um, which brings me to my next question. So, cause what we've been talking about right now has been all internal, you know, employees or employees and owners, right. but what about when a customer is the one doing the harassing? I mean, what is the employer's obligation or liability, uh, when it's a customer who's doing the harassing of an employee? Greg, that's a really good question and a good point to bring up because even though it's a customer or not somebody who you're actually able to control, um, as the owner or the employer, you are responsible for your employees. So perfect example is in a hotel, housekeepers who have to be, might be alone with guests. If there is a guest who is harassing that housekeeper, um, however they're doing it, that is your responsibility because you need to protect your employee. So in that instance, it's really important that you listen to the employee, you go back to the guest, you say that behavior is not tolerated here, and take steps to protect that employee. So that's that's when it happens on site, if it's a, a housekeeper or somebody or restaurant employees, um, maybe even the parking lot that the restaurant owns. But what about if it's a municipal parking lot? What about if it's a bar after hours, people go out for a drink in this industry sometimes in the late shift? If there's harassment that happens there, is there any obligation on the part of the employer to do anything? There's never any socialization outside of work, right? <laughs> um, that That's a really good point. So, uh, Here's the spectrum that I like to describe when I get this question. So if I am uh, two employees on my work site, at work, on the clock, and harassment happens, that's definitely an employer responsibility. Um, and then you kind of move across the, the spectrum of if I am at a company-sponsored party, which is not on the work site, not on the job time, but is paid for by the employer and I've been invited by my employer and the employer is sponsoring it mm -hmm. and harassment happens. Well, that's probably still probably some liability for the employer. Uh, if I'm going out with my coworkers after work, um, then, uh, and the employer's not uh, paying for it, there are no managers there, they're offsite, then you could say there's a little bit of liability, potential liability, but not a ton. Um, when we get to the far end of the spectrum is two employees who don't know each other, have never worked together, um, just run into a, each other at a party and identify that they work for the same employer. Probably not a lot of liability in that case. Yeah. Mm. But, but complicated. I mean, just uh, as Lori said earlier, I think clear as mud, right? Because there's all these different things that can, can play into 
whether it's harassment or not and whether it takes place on site or off site. And, and uh, so definitely um, something employers need to keep an eye on. Yeah. And what I, what I'm sort of hearing is, is that, uh, you know, one of the best practices is going to be having these conversations more frequently with your employees, um, open dialogue, talking about, um, you know, any issues that may come up or, or just making sure that you're both on the same, um, level of expectations as far as what is a safe environment, um, for them to work in. Yeah. And I would say if you are an employer who is listening to this and thinking, "Uh Oh, how do I fix this? Um, I think it's a good idea to maybe go in and say to your employees, Hey, we're resetting the bar here and here's the new acceptable behavior. And, and then as, uh, owners, managers, and supervisors, uh, the best thing I can advise is if you see behavior that is unacceptable, stop it right then. Um, Go and talk to the person. It doesn't need to be offensive, but go in and saying, hey, remember we had that conversation about resetting expectations? What I just heard you say to that person is no longer acceptable. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a best practice, as you uh, called out, because a lot of times when I get called in to do investigations, it's just something small that just didn't get addressed. Nobody said anything, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And I can tell you, by the time I get pulled in, it's a big deal. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's about being proactive, not reactive. Right, I mean, you have to react Absolutely. quickly when it does happen, but being more proactive, I think, could uh, you know help prevent some of this. But. Well, here at Orla, I know we practice uh, fierce conversations, uh, something that our president and CEO Jason Brandt brought to the organization, where um, you don't let something sit and fester. You don't you know, let an issue go unresolved. If there's a problem, um, it can be difficult obviously sometimes to address it, but, um, you need to, and the best course of action in the first place, of course, is to go to the individual and say, I need to talk to you about something and whether it's sexual harassment or other behavior or whatever it might be, whatever the issue is. But, um, I think, you know, that's kind of what Lori's talking about here too, as well as just getting people to talk in the workplace first and foremost to see if they can deal with it themselves. And then if they can't, obviously taking the next step of reporting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, having those difficult conversations really does just take practice. I mean, so most people have no problem saying to an employee, hey, I noticed you were five minutes late. Can you please come to work on time? And if you were if you are practicing what you preach and addressing the things, then it's just, hey, I heard you say something like that. Please don't do it again. And that becomes easier to say the more you try it out. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've you've shared a lot of great information here, and I, you know, we appreciate that. Um, what resources are out there for owners and operators who may not have their own HR department or, you know, attorneys on retainer? Where can well, they go? There's obviously me. Um, so I do HR consulting and people can reach out to me. Um, my website is www.hrtnorthwest.com or you can simply email me at Darcy at hrtnorthwest.com. But there are other um, really good resources out there. Um, both the EEOC and Boley have um, pretty good FAQ um, sites on this topic because it's a big topic. Um, the Society for Human Resource Management uh, has uh, a lot of materials available. Some of it is for members only, but some of it is for anybody who can pull it up. So um, both of those are all of those sites. And then I mean, in, there's tons of stuff in the news right at the moment. Um, if you probably just pull up, how do I prevent sexual harassment? You can probably get some good tips. Mm-hmm. I bet. Fantastic. 
Well, Darcy, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, I know this was um, this is kind of a difficult topic sometimes to talk about, but uh, obviously a very important one. We want to make sure that employees are safe and employers are doing the right thing and, and that they're safe as well. Um, any last comments? Anything you want to uh, chime in on? Not that I can think of, but thanks for having me today. I really uh, appreciated the chance to talk with you and, and talk about this topic because while you keep saying it's a difficult topic, it's something that I deal with a lot. And uh, I think the more that you're transparent about it, the better it is for everybody. That's yeah. great advice. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take another quick break and then we'll come back with the Advocacy Watch. Hi, I'm Punky Scott, the owner of the Bomber Restaurant in Milwaukee. My dad opened the bomber in 1948 because our family has always loved food. With this love of food, however, comes a huge concern over wasting it. One day I looked in the bomber's garbage bins and discovered our customers were not finishing what we served them. We made a few changes to our portion sizes, started composting, and now very little food gets wasted. Being a sustainable business is important to me and to my family. By changing how we handle food in our kitchen, we're improving our bottom line and helping to preserve Oregon's natural resources for future generations. Visit foodwastestopswithme.org to learn more about how you can help reduce food waste in your kitchen. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. Uh, This is the part of the program where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. And I think top of the list for us this month uh, was our big win over in Bend uh, with our lawsuit against the city of Bend. Uh, As a reminder, city of Bend was using some of the restricted tourism promotion funds. They took some of that money and used it for roads or wanted to use it for roads, I guess. So we brought a lawsuit along with a couple of our hotel members over there and uh, the judge ruled in our favor. Yeah, I think it was a a good win. In fact, provided some clarification, don't don't you think, um, you know, for other jurisdictions that might want to be looking at utilizing more of their lodging tax dollars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here at Orla, we firmly believe that uh, the law states, you know, how you can split those lodging tax revenues. And in some cases, like the city of Bend, um, they're actually getting the lion's share already as unrestricted funds that they can use for whatever they want, police, fire, roads. Uh, But in this case, they tried to take some of the unrestricted funds that are used for tourism promotion um, and or facilities and uh, it was just an overreach on their part. And so, yeah, this is uh, absolutely a good way for us to remind the municipalities out there, some of the cities and counties, that uh, they do have unrestricted funds, but um, the restricted ones need to be for tourism promotion. Right. little uh, shout-out to Carnop Peterson, LLC, the attorneys that we worked with. They did a, a tremendous job um, working on this case with us. Yeah, they were a huge help and uh, great, great folks to work with over there. Um, And so, yeah, big, big thank you to them. We appreciate that. Well, uh, one of the ways that we keep informed about things on our Advocacy Watch is the emails that we get uh, at info at OregonRLA.org. And one of those was in reference to a meals tax that might be proposed in the city of Jacksonville down in southern Oregon. So the, um, the city itself actually has decided that to pay for Uh, their police services. They have about a $300,000 hole down there in their budget for police services. They were going to do a $20 surcharge on their water bill, uh, similar to how they pay for fire services down there. And the budget committee agreed and the city council passed it, but uh, there were two or three people who decided that they would rather have a meals tax down there of 5% 
And so we're working with the restaurants and the small business owners in there because we know that Jacksonville relies on uh, tourism and the local residents, of course, aren't going to want to pay a meals tax like that. But uh, we'll keep you updated. You can go to, uh, there's a Facebook page, uh, No Sales Tax on Meals, and uh, check it out. But uh, we're always we're always interested in hearing what's going on locally. So again, if you hear about something in your community, uh, in your county, let us know. Uh, email us at info at oregonrla.org. Well, rolling right into scheduling. Uh, as a reminder, we passed a scheduling law last year, 2017. And we've just recently gone through two rulemaking sessions with that scheduling law and a public hearing. So we're just waiting for the final version to come down from uh, BOLI, that's the Bureau of Labor and Industries. And of course, as soon as we get that final version, uh, we will send it out to everybody and let you know kind of what you need to do to prepare. But um, July 1st, 2018, that scheduling law will go into effect if you have over 500 employees and if you're in retail, uh, food service, or hospitality industries. Yeah, the deadline's coming up, and I know that you've uh, received a, a number of emails, Greg, on this, um, members asking more specific questions, but what's what's sort of the top of the list there? What are they really uh, needing to know right now? You know, I think most of the questions, Lori, are around kind of the, the potential what-if situations. It's uh, examples that I'm I'm getting from people about, well, if I do this and I do that, am I still going to pay the predictability pay or is it, you know, do I have to pay two hours because of this? And um, so there's just some clarification, I think, that's still happening around some of the rules. And so unfortunately, I can answer those questions only to the best of my ability based on what we're currently seeing from Boley. Uh, whether it changes one more time in the final version, uh, we'll, we'll have yet to see. But again, we will um, put that out there and... and um, let you know what the changes were, but from the original law. Yeah, I, there, there just still are a number of questions there. So in the meantime, though, just again, if people do have questions, they can email you directly. Yeah, you can email me, askly at oregonrla.org. You can also send uh, general questions to info at oregonrla.org. And of course, our website, oregonrla.org. We've always got a lot of good information there as well. So if you, if you take a peek and you see something that you need clarification on, do, do get in touch with us. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Boiled Down. So I'd like to say thank you again to Darcy McAllister of HRT Northwest and to my co-host, Lori Little, Orla Director of Communications, for joining me today. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.